Your kingdom is divided, it can't stand You're weighed in the balance and I'm wanting Your houses are built upon the sand You're welcome, Neil And Johnny I said you're welcome, Neil This yes. is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Fracking is an extractive industry in that it extracts resources, natural resources, in this case natural gas, from the earth for profit. It's what it does. Turns out, according to a study authored by today's guest, fracking is also extractive in that it extracts jobs from communities that allow fracking. It extracts wealth in that local economies or incomes decline even when the industry is at peak production. And it extracts the people who made up that community by chasing the locals who can afford to leave out of town. Despite that, whatever supporters might claim without any evidence, fracking does not create jobs for locals. It does not increase incomes. It does not save communities or economies. It destroys them, just like it destroys the earth where fracking takes place. We'll learn all about the true economic impact of yet another destructive fossil fuel industry in a few when we speak with Sean O'Leary, the principal author of the new report from the Ohio River Valley Institute called Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, contributing more to the U.S. economy and getting less in return. Sean is senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, a nonprofit research and communications center that strives to provide sound research for a more sustainable, equitable, democratic, and prosperous Appalachia. Sean's focus is on energy and petrochemicals. You can find out more about the Institute at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. Sean is a West Virginia native and author of the State of My State blog and newspaper column, which ran in the Martinsburg, West Virginia Journal between 2010 and 2014. Sean is also the author of a book by the same name, The State of My State, which was published back in 2013. You can visit the State of My State blog at thestateofmystate.com with dashes, hyphens, I can't remember which one they are, in between all those words. Sean is also a playwright and author of six plays that have been professionally produced. They include Pound, about the poet Ezra Pound, which starred Christopher Lloyd in an off-Broadway production in 2018. So that's something. Follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary followed by the number one. Also on today's show, this week's question from hell for you, why we haven't done a show for 10 freaking days. And if you listen regularly, you can probably guess why. We'll also have this uh, this morning's hangover cure. We'll share an email that even Alex hasn't read yet, an email that comes from someone persecuted for supporting This Is Hell. We'll also have Rotten History. Did I say that already? No. We'll tell you about this week's lineup of guests, and you will learn why my life will never be the same because a trailblazer for my own personal human rights, an alleged conspirator in a plot to assassinate President Gerald R. Ford and a person I narked on, forcing him to go into hiding by living with a goat in a barn, passed away this weekend. And I will tell you about that late person, and who they are following our guest. But more important than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? What is the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We don't have any commercials. We don't take any grant money. We don't make enough money to be a (laughs) not-for-profit. That's how not-for-profit we are. So remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your amazing continued support of This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But as always, we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. 
prior to Jeff Dorchin delivering the moment of truth. And that's the way we wrap up most of our week's shows. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again. The question from hell is, what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2021? A real quick update on why this is our first show of any kind in 10 days. Since our Patreon podcast back on February 19th, on Friday, February 19th. Can you believe it was that long ago? During that show, which you can also only hear if you are a subscriber at our Patreon account, patreon.com slash thisishell. I thanked listener Rob again for sending me a new office chair to help my aching back. I also commented on the huge snowstorm, which forced us to miss a show two weeks ago, saying, and I quote, when neighbors and businesses don't clear their walk, idiots like me with really bad backs are forced to walk on uneven ground, which is the worst thing you can do if you have an aching back like mine. Which is exactly what happened on the way to and from the show on Friday because the sidewalks around the empty lot at the corner were not being maintained and cleared. When I got home, I sat down, I filled a cup of coffee, and immediately knew my back had gone out. I didn't do anything strenuous, so I figured it was nothing, no big deal. Alex and I just kept going back and forth about booking a guest for last Monday's show. My back kept getting worse, and I just didn't think it was going to be all that bad. But in the middle of the night, maybe 4 or 5 in the morning, I woke up in incredible pain. I could barely get to the bathroom. The whole time my spine was seizing up along the way with every step. I got in the shower for a moment with the water spraying on my lower back, and then I couldn't stand up anymore, so I had to sit down. I immediately realized I wasn't going to be able to get out of the tub without assistance, I had to crawl out of the tub, crawl across my from my bathroom to my office, my home office, type Alex a very quick email saying my back had gone out and there was going to be no show on Monday, crawled back to bed, eventually woke up several hours later and I couldn't stand up, couldn't walk, couldn't sit up, couldn't do anything without pain or assistance. I, so on Tuesday, I actually tried to get over here to see if I could act to make it, do like a dry run of actually walking over to the space and that was a huge mistake i was out for another 48 hours because of back pain so thanks to all of you for all of your patience thanks for your continued support thanks for listening thanks for all the well wishes and great advice on how to deal with whatever the hell is wrong with my freaking back best listeners ever who knew that if you actually let democracy in the studio door if you actually practiced what you preach on a pro-democracy anti-capitalist show you just might get great content and great listeners. And if you want to support completely listener-supported This Is Hell, you can by subscribing to thisishell.com. By, I'm sorry, by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support or by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. On our last Patreon podcast, that's now two Fridays ago, I told you who was gaslighting me. It's driving me crazy. It's driving the show nuts, and likely you and everybody else, too. Yep, we're all being gaslighted. You, me, everybody, and it's likely the same pricks doing it to all of us. And we shared our 2006 interview with the late, great, award-winning journalist James Ridgway, who passed away in February. He had broken so many major stories back in the 60s and 70s, but he was on 15 years ago to tell us about a story he had written on the possibility of a third bomber who was involved in the 1995 Murrah building attack in Oklahoma City, but got away. But you can only hear that interview with James and find out why and who the Jagoff is who's gaslighting us, you, me, and everyone by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is sprats or sardines. The final cure we are citing from an early January article at The Guardian with the headline, Readers Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar comes from an anonymous civil servant in London. The government worker tells The Guardian, years ago, I worked in a job center and at the end of a hard week, half the office would pile into the pub opposite to let off some steam. The next day, I'd crawl out early down to the local shopping strip and get some grapefruit for the vitamin C, as well as either a platter of tiny lamb chops or preferably a bag, a bag of sprats or sardines. I'd grill the latter hot and fast and eat with a petite pan to soak things up. By 10 a.m., I'd feel like a king and be ready to tackle the weekend. So that makes this week's hangover cure grapefruit and a bag of sardines. <laughs> Do not get a tin. 
That's a huge mistake that will ruin the hangover cure for you. You must get the Sprats or Sardines in a bag. And I know that Jeff Dorchin prefers Sprats over Sardines because he was the person who introduced them to me, and I thought that they were just as gross as Sardines, even though I love anchovies. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. Prior to my back going out last week, we received an email at chuckatthisishell.com that was so good I did not share it with Alex because I did not want to get his reaction until everybody was reacting at the same time right here on air. It's the kind of email I I always knew we would eventually get. We've had similar reactions to the show in the past, but none of them was quite as intense as what happened to longtime listener Jack B., who often gives hilarious answers to this week's question from hell, is a past question from hell winner, in fact, and also emails us great guest and topic suggestions, as so many of our listeners do. Jack writes, ready, Alex? This is really good. Jack writes, hope you all are staying warm in Chicago. I recently ordered myself a copy of The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins and thought it might be a good topic for an interview. So before I continue with Jack's email, so many people have been sending me tips on how to fix my freaking back that I seriously thought The Jakarta Method was a a back exercise. (laughs) Like the McKenzie Method someone suggested I try, but no... Jack's saying we should have Vincent Bevins on to talk about his book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World, which details the hidden story of the wanton slaughter in Indonesia, Latin America, and around the world, backed by the United States of America. See, I told you we have the best listeners, and Vince's book at Jack's Jack's suggestion is, is going directly to our list. Jack continues, and this is where it gets kind of weird. Jack writes, I also wanted to relay a story that involves This Is Hell merchandise. Over the holidays, I got a job delivering packages for UPS. I was a seasonal delivery driver helping deliver packages in my own car. It's worth mentioning I'm in West Georgia, so big Trump conservative country. One day while out in a neighborhood, I'm parked looking at my phone and where I'm going next, and all of a sudden a guy in a white pickup truck stops me. So I roll down my window, and White Pickup starts grilling me about looking suspicious because I parked on one side of the street and walked to the other side to check a home address and then back to my car. I explained that I'm with UPS, I don't know the area very well, etc., and show him my diode and the stops I'm making on it and my UPS vest that I'm actually wearing. He then starts filming me and says he wasn't going to report me, but now he's going to call UPS because my This Is Hell hat is quote-unquote inappropriate, and as a construction business owner, he'd fire anyone who wore such a hat to work. Luckily, nothing came of it, and my boss told me not to worry, but yeesh, what an a-hole, huh? Anyways... All the best, Jack B. in Western Georgia. Thanks, Jack. And while all our merchandise is quality merchandise, comfortable to wear, easy to use, and well-crafted, we cannot be held responsible for the ways in which a-holes may react to your This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, trucker's hat, winter cap, or coffee mug. And if you give somebody the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive with a couple dozen interviews from the past 20 years or so, well, that's on you. But... If you take a This Is Hell tote bag to Friday prayers at a mosque, as another listener told us he did, don't be surprised if your Muslim brothers give you the stink eye. And don't be upset about it. That's on you. Or as another listener told us at the beginning of the pandemic, don't be shocked if the cashier at the grocery store who looks like they really hate their job during a plague inquires as to how they too can get a This Is Hell tote bag because they tell you, I really need one of those bad. Remember, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your comments, queries, I love queries, guest or topic suggestions, or anything really, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell coming up. Fracking does not fulfill any of the promises it makes to local communities. They claim their operations will benefit. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what's the hot fashion trend of spring 2020 or 2021? 
as well as Rotten History, my thoughts on the passing of an alleged assassination conspirator who I love very much, and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. This is not the media. This is hell. Fracking's proponents promise that the extractive industry will bring jobs to depressed communities, increasing incomes, and improving the overall economy, which will attract new residents and save rotting Rust Belt towns from decades of deterioration from manufacturing loss. In reality, when fracking comes to town, jobs disappear, incomes decline, and neighbors flee. Here to help us have a better understanding of fracking's economic impact felt by local communities where it takes place, Sean O'Leary is the principal author of the new report from the Ohio River Valley Institute called Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, Contributing More to the U.S. Economy and Getting Less in Return. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sean. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you for inviting me. Sean is senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, a nonprofit research and communication center that strives to provide sound research for a more sustainable, equitable, democratic, and prosperous Appalachia. Sean's focus is on energy and petrochemicals. You can find out more about Sean by going to thestateofmystate.com, his blog. There's hyphens between each and every word, one of those words, and you can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary, followed by the number one. The press release for your report describes how your analysis quantifies the decade-long failure of the natural gas boom in the Marcellus and Utica fields to deliver growth in jobs, income, and population to the 22 Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia counties that produce more than 90% of the region's natural gas. So to deliver growth, whatever the fossil fuel operation, whatever the extractive industry that is having an impact on the environment, that impact is always justified with job production, with giving back to the local community economically. And any suggestion of scrutinizing that industry or regulating it in any way is seen as taking jobs away from the local economy. If it isn't delivering growth, is it at least bringing some level of economic stability to the communities where fracking exists. Fracking was supposed to save Rust Belt towns from the loss of manufacturing. To what degree is fracking saving the Rust Belt? Well, virtually none. When you just used the word stability, in fact, what has happened is the opposite of that. And that is that it's caused turmoil within local economies. So there have been, for instance, natural gas jobs added, but at the same time, those jobs have been added. Other jobs in the economy have gone away in larger numbers. And when you take the net effect of all of that, depending on the individual county you talk about, there has either been very little job growth and in many cases, negative job growth, a a net loss of jobs. When there is discussion on Fox News about closing down, like the D- Dakota Access Pipeline, for instance, or any of these pipelines, on Fox News, what they'll do is they'll go into a diner and they'll interview individuals about how that will affect their individual job. And it's hard not to feel sympathy for these individuals who are losing their individual jobs. What happens to our perspective and our understanding on the loss of fossil fuel, of extractive industry jobs, when we only focus on individual people losing individual jobs and not how it affects the greater community and economy? It's a case of something akin to Stockholm syndrome. And that is when you're in a declining economy where jobs are bleeding away, you have a tendency to grab on to whatever is there even if it happens to be the thing that is killing you. Uh, And we've seen this happen. I'm from West Virginia, as you mentioned in the introduction. We've been watching this happen for decades in the Southern Appalachian coal fields, where the number of people with jobs has been declining literally for 60 years. And yet, you know, many people in those regions cling to the jobs that they have left because there's nothing else there. And while all of us, that's, while that's understandable at an individual level, you know, we have a responsibility as a society and our politicians have responsibility as leaders to look at this for its overall effects on the economy, which is, I think, what you're pointing out. And when you look at it for the overall effect, you realize the damage that's being done. But it's really, it's very difficult 
to not sympathize with people whose uh, whose livelihood is transitioning to another new way of making a living. So how do we overcome that? You know, because I, I, you feel so bad for somebody. They're losing a, a, you know, a relatively well-paying job. They, they're losing their stability. They're losing their livelihood. How do you... How do you square that sympathy for the loss of a job with your concerns about how fracking could destroy a community? The greatest responsibility that I think I have that the Ohio River Valley Institute has is to help people, to help policymakers in the area discover new opportunities to transition to a healthy and sustainable economy. And we're doing that. And frankly, we have Uh, a very promising opportunity now with the advent of the Biden administration and the emphasis on energy transition. We're talking about areas that actually can benefit greatly from doing that. But going back to your point before, it does require change. And change is hard and change is scary. And there are winners and there are losers anytime you do something like this. But when you're faced with the alternative that that region is faced with now, doing nothing is even more destructive than taking the chance of making those kinds of changes. The area, as you point out, um, let's see, it's contrary to the predictions of the oil and natural gas industry, which a decade ago published economic impact studies saying the expected boom in natural gas production would give rise to over 450,000 new jobs in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Data from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis showed those jobs in the 22 counties crept up by a paltry 1.6%, while nationally, the number of jobs grew by 9.9%. So 450,000 jobs were promised. They were not created. Can the industry be held to that promise, be held accountable in any way? Can, Can they be held accountable or in any way be penalized for not providing jobs that were the reason the community allowed fracking in the first place? The... You know, I'm not an attorney and I'm not a lawmaker, so I'm not sure what can be done legally or otherwise. But one of the effects that I hope this report has is to impress upon policymakers, even those, and this is most of those in the region who have supported the natural gas industry, is that even if you support this thing, you're getting a raw deal. That the exchange that you're making for you know, the air that residents breathe, the water they drink, the effects on the rest of the economy, and all of those sacrifices, which frankly, even many people who live in the region and support the industry recognize as being sacrifices, you're just not getting a good enough deal to even remotely make that acceptable. And in fact, if you look at the numbers, you're really getting no deal at all, especially when it comes to jobs. I mean, Chuck, to put this in context, understand that this region between about the year 2008, when the fracking boom in Appalachia began, and 2019, which is the last year for which there are complete statistics, this region increased or its share of contribution to gross domestic product, the output that this is contributing to the nation went up by three times the national average. And when you think about, well, what should have happened? Ideally, you would like to see gains in jobs, gains in income, and gains in population that are roughly proportional to that. But in fact, what happened is that not only did uh, those benefits not keep up Uh, not only were they not proportional to the increase in output, they were actually lower than national averages. And in the case of jobs in many of these counties, they saw an out and out decline. This is a classic case of the resource curse where you see immense gains in output in production, but you see almost no corresponding improvement in local prosperity. But the idea of economic growth, that tells us that if your GDP grows, then your economy will grow. If you produce more, then it will trickle down in income, in jobs, in stability for the overall local economy. What happens when that concept of economic growth as a development model is shown to actually not produce growth? What happens when 
the economics of growth actually undermine economic growth? The what you just put your finger on is the central conundrum here, which is that obviously a lot of money changed hands. There was a lot of investment to produce natural gas. The gas got produced, the gas got sold, and it was paid for. What we know from the study is that very little of that money, either on the investment side or on the revenue side when the gas was sold, ever ended up entering the local economy, which is the kind of scenario you hear about, frankly, developing countries um, and not something that's usually thought of as being characteristic of uh, developed countries of North America and certainly not of the United States. And so what happens in answer to your question is what is happening and has happened in the greater Ohio Valley in Northeast Pennsylvania, which is you see great disruptions to the economy. I mean, if you live in the region, you've got fracking pads scattered all over the place. You've got heavy trucks going to and from fracking locations. Uh, you're seeing immense increases in emissions of various toxic substances in the area. You're seeing road damage that requires local services to repair them. Uh, you're seeing really ugly disruptions to your way of life in many cases. And that is the result you get without, again, any offsetting economic benefit. But as you point out, it did bring not many and not the number of jobs that it promised, but it did bring some jobs. So should local communities be happy about the few jobs that fracking does bring? Not at the price they're paying to get them. I mean, you know, you, you can make, and this is what uh, those who've shot back at the study, and there have been many of them, not surprisingly, um, have tried to point out, they've gone to per capita statistics and said, well, gee, Fracking jobs pay well, and they do compared to many other jobs. Uh, they say the unemployment rate has actually gone down, and it has. But what they don't tell you, of course, is that the unemployment rate, down, went, rate went down, not the good way, which would be by adding jobs to the economy. It went down the bad way, which is by subtracting workers from the labor force. So you actually have a double whammy hitting this region. The first whammy is that they're losing jobs, but the second whammy is that the region is also losing workers. It's seeing its talent pool depleted, which weakens the area economically, and frankly, in the long term, makes it even tougher to turn this ship around. And they outsource a lot of these jobs to people who do not live in the community or might not even live in the United States. Do, does fracking at least create more spending in the local community because of whatever small increase in jobs and, and whatever capital investment that the fracking concern has to do, like maybe getting a tractor or getting some sort of equipment from locals? Does it at least create more spending in the local economy because a new industry is in town? Very some, but very little. And we're actually studying that for what will be a companion report shortly to look at those sectors of the economy, which may have seen some benefit. And those include local trucking and storage firms, for instance, um, any place that's associated with a lot of transient people coming and going and moving equipment around probably did okay in this. But what we also know is those kinds of businesses that kind of form the fabric of our everyday life, the grocery store, you know, the hairdresser, the movie theater, places like that, actually, and this is especially true in Eastern Ohio, which has suffered the most, they have actually seen a decline in business. And that specifically, that phenomenon flies in the face of what people were told would happen. Because going back to what you said in the introduction at the top, there was supposed to be that trickle-down effect that would take hold, that the fracking companies would hire lots of local people to drill wells. Um, the companies doing the drilling would need support services and supply services, which would cause new businesses to grow up around the valley to support the fracking business. And the employees from all of those companies would start spending their money in the local economy, and that would induce the creation of even more jobs downstream. And that is precisely what has not been seen in the region. 
we have not seen the growth of uh, downstream uh, businesses and downstream jobs as was predicted. And yes, much of it goes back to what you just said, which is many of the workers uh, come to the region from places like Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana that have a heritage of natural gas and oil exploration. And also many of the support services do as well. It's just not that long of a drive, frankly, for folks to come up from the Gulf Coast and provide those kinds of services. And so by and large, the knock-on benefits that were once touted never actually manifested. And you write about the boom and bust nature of extractive industries. What's wrong with uh, the economic development model of a boom or bust kind of situation with extractive industries? What, how is that detrimental to a local economy when it's just focusing on that one boom? I mean, isn't a temporary boom better than no boom whatsoever? Um, oftentimes it's not because in the short run, it does things that really distort the local economy. And for instance, in the Ohio Valley, because you had so many workers coming into the area from outside the region, it drove rents through the ceiling. And that very likely exacerbated the problem of population loss in the area. Um, and then the other downside of a bust and boom business is that when you talk about the potential for uh, becoming the foundation for job creation and for expansion in other parts of your economy, you know, seeing more restaurants, more movie theaters, more of those other things that, as I said, make the fabric of life. People don't want to invest in those things if they think, oh, yeah, it'll be great for a couple of years. But after that, we could be flat on our backs again. And so even people who might be inclined to invest to pursue the profit motive look at boom and bust uh, businesses and they recognize that, yes, it may look good right now, but two or three years from now, that may no longer be the case. And so they hesitate to invest locally. And that is another effect that we've seen happening. And as you're pointing out, like a local grocery store will close down because there's a population drop. So there isn't as much of a demand and grocery stores work on a very, very slim margin. So they will often go out of business. And then all of a sudden, the residents of the local community have to go elsewhere to do their grocery shopping and spend money, possibly in likely in other counties where fracking doesn't take place. So and, and the, the tragedy, Chuck, to what you just said, which was a very apt characterization of what's happening, it shouldn't have taken this report to open people's eyes to this, because all you have to do is walk through, drive through downtown Steubenville, Ohio, Belair, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia, Waynesburg, Pennsylvania. You see it on the streets in the downtowns the empty lots, the boarded up storefronts are commonplace in the region. In, in other words, it, it was evident that there was no uh, economic boom going on in this region long before this report was published. So who does benefit? I mean, outside of uh, peripheral counties that might have a, a, a population increase due to people fleeing from the fracking county, uh, businesses in peripheral counties that might be profiting more because the businesses have closed down in the fracking county. Uh, who benefits from fracking? Well, <laughs> this is perhaps the greatest irony of the whole exercise, and that is that the fracking economy has been a disaster almost from day one, particularly for investors in many cases. Uh, I would recommend uh, the work of a fellow named Clark Williams Derry uh, at the Institute for Energy Economic Financial Analysis. He follows uh, the fracking industries, both oil and natural gas regularly, and he has documented uh, for some time now the inability of natural gas fracking companies, particularly those in Appalachia, to generate a positive cash flow. They haven't done it yet. Uh, and how long the shell game can continue is anyone's guess. Uh, they were nurtured along a little bit during the recovery from the pandemic because they benefited highly from the initial uh, stimulus package that was passed uh, while Trump was still president. And 
So we don't know how long the game can continue, but what we do know is that the opportunities for natural gas to expand are beginning to dry up a little bit. Uh, there are only so many coal-fired power plants that you can replace in the country, and we're not seeing the petrochemical industry, which theoretically could expand based on natural gas components. Uh, that has not taken off in Appalachia either, and probably won't. So were the promises by the fracking industry based on or in any historical success that either fracking had on local communities, economies, or other fossil fuel or extractive industry history of local economic success? Is there some evidence the fracking industry can point to that support supports their claims and may still support their claims that they will improve local economies and bring more, more jobs with higher pay? Well, again, in your I, the answer is no. <laughs> again, in your introduction, you pointed out that the fracking industry in Appalachia has been running flat out for more than a decade now. Uh, you know, if this were a case in which we were seeing an industry operating at only sixty or seventy percent of capacity, and you could just say yes, but if we could really get this thing cranked up, then the benefits would flow. But the answer is no. This it it has been as good as it gets. If prosperity were going to ensue, it would have happened by now. Um, and that's in part, I think, because fracking is a still a relatively new technology. The technology has been out there for decades, but in terms of becoming even remotely economically viable, that's still about a 10, 15-year-old process. And so I think a lot of people didn't know what they were going, what they were doing when this thing started. And I have to admit that. I personally, I mean, I the Valley is my home and I love the place. Uh, I'm, I'm on record as saying it and writing it. And I have to tell you, I have immense compassion for county commissioners and other people in local policymaking positions who after 40, 50 years of relentless economic decline, you know, one day in the year 2010 had some larger than life character like Aubrey McClendon show up in their offices and say, I want to invest a billion dollars in your county. I mean, what, what are you going to say? I mean, in most cases, you probably say, how can I help? Because even when you look at the you know, pollution implications, the other disadvantages, to a place that has lost, like my hometown has, half of its population in the last 40 years, you hear that kind of promise, you manage to look past a lot of um, environmental and other quality of life concerns and say, yes, but by God, it might be jobs. I understand why people made the bet and went for this thing. And I wouldn't have, I wrote that at the time, but I understand it. But the point is we're, we're more than a decade in now, it hasn't worked. And for the reasons I just mentioned, it's not going to. And I'm hoping people realize that. What role do you think the overall national conversation, especially on outlets like Fox News and the right, what impact do you think that has on a community's decision to use fracking as a as an economic development model? Because I, I was going to ask you, to what extent does fracking continue? Because fracking is somehow politically advantageous. But as you were just explaining, I can understand why it would be politically practical because you're looking for a short-term solution and you're not really considering the longer-term problems because people are incredibly, incredibly desperate. But what impact do you think the political debate around uh, fracking has, the national overall political debate around fracking, has on local small desperate Rust Belt communities to accept fracking, which leads to, as you've pointed out in your study, decline in jobs, wages, and population. It's the, the national dialogue, national discourse on this issue has been toxic for this region. And I will tell you this anecdotally from, you know, having lived there and being around the region, and I, you know, communicate regularly with people who are there. There is an impression that even among those who live there who see those empty storefronts 
and other decrepit downtowns that I mentioned a few minutes ago, there is a perception there, believe it or not, despite the evidence of, of our own eyes, that fracking really is creating jobs. People believe that because they're told so relentlessly by media, by many of their elected leaders in particular. Um, it's And people find remarkable ways to rationalize and reconcile the conflict between what they're hearing by the people they elect to represent them and what they actually see around them. And it's commonplace for people to actually say when I ask them about it, oh, it's true, things aren't real great here, but if you go over to this other county, if you go to Eastern Pennsylvania, you'll see the boom there. <laughs> it's, it is one of the most remarkable and destructive things that I can imagine. But I do have hope on this front because as you know, in the last few weeks of the recent election campaign, the Trump campaign in an effort to save Pennsylvania harped strongly on the issue of fracking and their support of fracking and their claim that Joe Biden would ban fracking. What's interesting about that is that when you look at the fracking counties in Pennsylvania and particularly those in the southeast corner around Pittsburgh, their support for Trump in the 2020 election actually declined slightly from what it had been in 2016, which suggests to me that folks on the ground are beginning to get it because that appeal to, you know, I'm going to support fracking and Biden's going to ban it clearly did not have any positive effect for the Trump campaign in hindsight. And so I am looking, I'm hoping that politicians will look at that and begin to realize maybe people are catching on, maybe they're figuring this thing out. But Joe Biden, as you know, said it, he was not going to ban fracking at one point. I don't know what the stance of the administration is. I know that uh, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris was uh, opposed to, or was yeah opposed to fracking. Um, so what hope do you have for any change when it comes to policy on fracking? Obviously, it's going to be better than the presidency of Donald Trump, but how much better? Well, first, you have to consider that we're talking about a region that basically went for Trump 70-30. I mean, so you're not going to see a complete revolution in a year or even two or three years. And that's why, from a policymaking perspective, my reason for optimism is this, that the deal these, getting, these counties are getting is so bad right now that even for policymakers who support support fracking, who support the industry, they nonetheless will feel the need to go back to the fracking companies to say, we got to get a better deal out of this thing. At the very least, even if it's not banned, we got to get a better deal. And if they do that, there are two ways in which they can do so, both of which would be immensely beneficial. The first one is that they could simply raise taxes. We got to get more money that goes into our local economies to make this thing even remotely access, acceptable. And then the second thing that they could do is put in place quality of life regulations uh, concerning setbacks, capping methane and other emissions and doing a variety of things that would cost the industry money. And that and so those are things that people can do incrementally. We're not asking, I'm not asking politicians to do a complete flip-flop. I'd be thrilled if they did, but that's not practical. Um, but what they can do if they feel the need, if they really want to represent their constituents is go in and say, we got to get a better deal. And by doing that, yes, it would raise the costs on an, on an industry that's already failing to show profits. And that would greatly hasten the demise of this industry. And so that that's the practical outcome that I hope for. So what do you think is a greater challenge to the fracking industry? Is it environmentalists or is it the market? It's both at this point, uh, and that's the good news. And that is that <clears throat> right now, the forces are uh, working our way on a, a multiple fronts. The, on the economic front, it's happening. On the jobs front, it's happening. And certainly on the environmental front, uh, we now, for the first time in this region, 
actually have the industry on the defensive. And if you could see the reactions to the report, uh, you know, a couple of members of Congress in Ohio uh, sent out press releases condemning the report. Uh, I was just told last week that an industry organization uh, is circulating memos to every member of the Pennsylvania legislature concerning the report. It's scaring them. It's shaking them up. Um, the Ohio Oil and Gas Association has organized a basically a roadshow that they're taking around the region to try to refute the findings of the report. Uh, it, it shows an industry that for 10 years that has had the airwaves and public discourse almost exclusively at its disposal is now having to fight back. And that's progress. How dependent, then, is the nation's supply of natural gas on a system that does not produce jobs or increase incomes at the rate it promises while hurting local economies where its extraction is located? Does our natural gas supply depend upon a system that is bad for jobs, incomes, and economies? Uh, Yes, it does. Um, At the same time, there are trade-offs. Like any form of change, there are going to be winners and losers. Uh, The fracking boom, for instance, has driven down the price of natural gas in the region, and that has created benefits nationally in lower electric bills and in other things. But again, going to the question that you asked before, even those benefits, even that advantage of lower cost electricity is being superseded by renewable resources at this point. Um, Natural gas is no longer the lowest cost option for generating electricity in this country, renewables are. And that's a trend that frankly is only going to continue. And so while yes, you can point to, you you can claim that natural gas has had some economic benefits by lowering the cost of electricity. It has helped reduce carbon emissions by replacing coal in the electric system. That's true, but something even better now is coming up behind it. And that in the long term, I think works to all of our advantages. And my hope is that the regions that I wrote about in the report will recognize that. And rather than trying to continue economically to chase the past, that those regions will start looking at chasing that clean energy future, which does hold promise for them. And you did find one county in which there had been success with fracking when it comes to local jobs, income, economy, and that's the very small Doddridge County in West Virginia. But you point out that that, you know, the success that it had was also based on the fact that they had more economic diversification than the other 22, 21 other counties that you studied. So what was it? Economic diversification, not dependence upon fracking, that led to some counties in Frackalacha to show success? And to what extent do fracking companies, you know, allow or try to take over an economy, try to be the only thing in economy? Well, what you have to understand, and I say this as a native of West Virginia whose town coal mine closed and, you know, went through many of the transitions that we've all heard about recently. And that is that in a couple of respects, extractive industries, coal mining and natural gas, both are extremely inimical to economic diversification. And that's because they thrive in environments where property values are low, which makes it cheaper to get at the gas. And they also struggle with growing and diversifying places because places that are growing, you know, attract people and with people come expectations for quality of life, clean water, clean air, uh, and those things. And those are things with which, you know, the natural gas industry and the coal industry struggle. And so they seek out, and frankly, they tend to perpetuate um, economic depression in places where they're most successful. Um, And so, you know, again, going to your point, this is not a a foundation upon which you can build uh, success economically. The places that have done, understand, first of all, that none of the fracking counties have done well, just period. 
Um, when you look at having an increase in output that's three times the national average, um, there are none that did even remotely comparable to that in terms of the economic benefits. Uh, the only places other than tiny Doddridge County, which has fewer than 9,000 residents, the only other places that saw you know, a significant improvement in jobs was Washington County, Pennsylvania, which is suburban Pittsburgh. And the reason that <clears throat> it saw uh, you know, an increase in jobs that was roughly the same as the national average is frankly because it's a suburban county and the fracking industry there, despite the fact that it grew rapidly, isn't that big a part of the economy. Often areas where natural resources are threatened are also areas of natural beauty, so tourism is suggested as the alternative development model. However, tourism, as we've discussed on our show for several years now, brings about inequality, often low-wage service industry jobs that lack labor organizing or union power, are the only choices of those living in rural areas for models of economic development, destructive, extractive industries, or unequal tourism? Uh, no. And I would point to one, one, we, we have a group of economists who sit on an advisory committee for the Ohio River Valley Institute, one of whom is a, uh, an economist named Amanda Weinstein from the University of Akron. And she has done a wonderful study, which we wrote about in a blog post um, a few months ago, looking at what are the characteristics of micropolitan areas, not metropolitan areas, micropolitan areas, meaning small communities that are largely rural in character. What, what are the characteristics that enable those that succeed to do so? And overwhelmingly, those qualities tend to be um, related to quality of life considerations, including strong education, strong natural environment, uh, things that are within the realm of policymakers uh, to change oftentimes, and that those are things upon which they can concentrate. The other thing that you have to consider is that, you know, one of the principal Appalachian fracking regions is northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, which also coincidentally happens to be one of the areas of the country with the greatest promise for wind energy development as does the eastern third of West Virginia. So it's not as though this is a region that's devoid of other uh, resources apart from natural gas in this case. There are uh, economic possibilities for this region upon which it can build. I've got one last question for you, Sean. And the one thing I, I kept thinking about when I was reading your study is that it, it's not just an extractive industry, it's an extractive economic model, that it takes money, it takes jobs, it extracts people from the local community. And so extractive industries aren't just taking resources, they're just taking the life out of an entire community. And it just the, the word extractive just fits so perfectly with these industries. We've been speaking with John O'Leary. He is the principal author of the new report from the Ohio River Valley Institute called Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, Contributing More to the U.S. Economy and Getting Less in Return. You can find out more about the Institute at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. And you can find all of Sean's writing by going to the State of My State blog, which is at the State of My State, which has hyphens in between each.com. And you can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary1. One last question for you, Sean. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write this extreme disconnect between economic output and local prosperity raises the question of whether the Appalachian natural gas industry is capable of generating or even contributing to broadly shared well-being. And if it is not, should it continue to be the focus of local, regional, and economic development efforts? So what happens to an economy, Sean, that is no longer dependent upon shared well-being? What happens when an economy depends on being in opposition to shared well-being? You have the opportunity then to build your economy around industries that are labor rather than capital intensive. 
is the first thing. And when you do that, uh, when you do things like engage in energy efficiency, distributed solar, uh, a variety of other things, what you find is that much of the money that uh, is spent on those kinds of things um, is spent with local people. When you do energy efficiency upgrades, the people who do them, the businesses that do them, uh, whether they're insulators, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning contractors, you know, window and door replacement firms, these are all local businesses. And so the money spent on those things, the money invested in those things tends to stay in local economies and is far more stimulative of local expansion and jobs than extractive industries, which are the exact opposite. They are extremely capital intensive, not labor intensive. And because they're capital intensive, much of whatever wealth they generate uh, basically leaves the area and lands someplace else. And that's what we've seen in the 22 fracking counties of Appalachia. Sean, I am really looking forward to, you said you were going to be doing a follow-up report on this, and I'm really looking forward to seeing that as well. You can find out more about the Institute, the Ohio River Valley Institute at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org, where you can find the study. Sean, thank you so much for being on our show, uh, starting off our week. This is really fantastic work, and I hope that more and more people hear about it, and I hope that more and more industry people give you grief, because this is really great work. Thank you so much for being on our show. You're going to get both your wishes. Thank you. (laughs) See, it's my lucky week. Thank you very much, Sean. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and have any of our listeners been answering it? This week's question from hell is, what is the hot look for spring 2021? What is the hot look for spring 2021? Jack B says, designer body bags. <laughs> this might be a theme happening on this one. Uh, Greg M says, less porous fabrics with an antimicrobial finish. The doubles as a body bag for easy street removal. <laughs> uh, Andrew S. posted an image of somebody in a plague doctor's mask and outfit, I believe doing the cabbage patch. Marnell wow. posted plastic handguns. Kevin O. says <laughs> carjackings. <laughs> what is the hot look for spring 2021? Jeez. What is the hot look for spring 2021? Paolo S. says 2020 vintage <laughs> shirt and underwear. By the way, we are in the midst of a huge carjacking like serious serious situation here in chicago so. oh yeah yeah uh david z says saran wrap and snorkel chris l says literally being engulfed in flames garrett s says being put into caskets and alex j says fourth mask wow we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of thursday's show following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. So please leave your answer by then. You can post it on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But again, you have to have it to us by the end of Thursday's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell merchandise that you can see right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks for the support we received over the past couple of weeks from Gabriel H.E. and the tithing-like commitments of Brett B. and Magnificent Me. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on March 1st, 1921, 100 years ago today, Monday, celebrating its centennial. The state of Idaho amended a law originally passed in 1864 that banned interracial marriage and cohabitation in the state. The original 1864 statute had specified a prohibition of any such bond between a white person and, quote, any person of African descent, Indian, or Chinese, because Idaho has a long history of harboring deep, deep-seated hatred. You know, Coeur d'Alene is the home of Nazism in the United States. But the new 1921 amendment went further. Not only did it outlaw marriage between white people and those of Asian, African, or multiracial descent, but it increased the potential range of fines and raised the maximum jail sentence from one year to ten. Ten years for loving someone who is not determined to be white. God, I told you, Idaho sucks. The population of Idaho at the time was less than one-fiftieth of 1% African-American, so it's not like there was any so-called mixed marriages anyway. 
Idaho State Legislature would not repeal the law against interracial marriage until 1959. Bunch of potato-growing Nazis. Look, I am certain there are good Idahoans, whatever the hell they're called, and that this hatred is to some degree in their past. But I'm just as certain when they finally repealed the law against interracial marriage in 1959, a lot of racists in Idaho thought it was the end of the world and started wondering, when will America be great again? In Rotten History, March 5th, 1963, 58 years ago this Friday, the pilot of a small Piper Comanche airplane bound from Kansas City to Nashville lost control of the aircraft and crashed into a wooded swamp near Camden, Tennessee. The crash killed the pilot, along with his three passengers. Country music stars Patsy Cline and two country music stars I'd never heard of before, Cowboy, Cowboy Copas and Hawkshaw Hawkins who were headed home from a show in Kansas City, so I assume Patsy was the headlining act. It was later determined that Randy Hughes, an inexperienced pilot and also Patsy Cline's manager, having your manager as being an inexperienced pilot turns out to not be a very good combination. He had attempted to fly the plane at night in foggy conditions without adequate training and had suffered spatial disorientation, which caused him to put the aircraft into a so-called death spiral, similar to the circumstances around the death of Kobe Bryant. The plane's wreckage was found early the next morning and was quickly descended upon by souvenir hunters who made off with the passengers' money, clothing, and other items. And I think the same thing happened with Kobe Bryant, too, because people are turned into horrible scavengers by capitalism and its greedy lust for accumulation or something like that. Finally, in rotten history, on March 6th, 1968, 53 years ago this Saturday, in the former British colony of Rhodesia, named for a white supremacist in southern Africa. The white supremacist authorities, naturally, hanged three black men convicted of murdering a white motorist because, of course, they did. Two of the men were members of a black nationalist commando unit known as the Crocodile Gang, based in neighboring Zambia. Britain's Queen Elizabeth had issued a royal reprieve for the men, and the British government had warned the Rhodesian High Court that any execution would be tantamount to murder. But less than three years earlier, the white minority government of Rhodesia's prime minister, Ian Smith, had unilaterally declared it to be an independent state. And its high court had signed off on the hangings of the three men, James Delamini, Victor Malambo, and Dula Shadrach. The defendant's guilt aside, the execution was widely viewed as a political matter of the unrecognized Rhodesian government, giving Britain the middle finger. And nothing gives Britain the finger like killing Africans? Really? I think Britain's really into killing Africans. The hangings were denounced, not only in the UK, because they're incredibly hypocritical, but across Europe and the United Nations and around the world. The Parliament of India observed a moment of silence, and even in the United States, they lodged a protest, though the executions were barely mentioned in the U.S. news media, because if it doesn't happen within the United States, who really cares? For their part, the white Rhodesians followed up by hanging two more black prisoners five days later. One executioner was quoted as saying, I've been hanging people for years, but I've never had all this fuss about them before. The fuss did not die. The Rhodesian War of Liberation would continue to escalate until 1979, when the white colonialist leaders were finally pushed aside to make way for the internationally recognized new nation of Zimbabwe. And everybody walked off into the sunset and lived happily ever after, I think. But maybe I should brush up on Zimbabwe's history, because that might not be all that accurate. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at This Is Hell. Yeah, real excited to have historian Raquel Varela back on the show to talk about her new book, A People's History of Europe from World War One to Today. The This past Friday, a hero of mine, because he paved the way for me to be the very first disabled student, to matriculate through the East Detroit public school system all the way from kindergarten to graduating high school. Someone who I thought was very cool for standing up for his principles, even if that got him investigated for some plot to assassinate then President Gerald Ford, who was completely uh, a plot that was completely made up by the FBI. A person passed away who despite being a hero to me and someone I admired greatly I 
still actually ratted them out, narked on them for drug use and possession. Me. I did that. To his parents. And that hero of mine, that focus of my admiration, that lovely human I ratted out who died this past Friday is a person many of you have met at meet and greets, drink and thanks, office hours and anniversary parties for This Is Hell here at Carrie's Lounge. I lost my biggest brother, Matt Mertz, and I'll be telling you more about Matt on the rest of this week's show starting tomorrow when I will tell you exactly how he had a direct trailblazing impact on my life as a disabled person. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thank you, Alex, for producing. Thanks to Sean. Thanks to Ronaldo for rotten history. Thanks to all of you for being patient with me over the last couple of weeks in these very trying times physically and emotionally for me. Thanks to all of you. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.